Welcome to the USCCB First Freedom Podcast. I'm Aaron Matthew Weldon. And I'm Mary McCluskey. Last June, the bishops in the United States voted to make the Ad Hoc Committee for Religious Liberty a permanent standing committee. And then in November, when the Ad Hoc Committee's time had come to an end, Most Reverend Joseph Kurtz, Archbishop of Louisville, was elected as the chair of the Committee for Religious Liberty. Archbishop Kurtz joins us today to talk about where we are going and what he hopes we can accomplish over the next few years. Archbishop Kurtz, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to have you here on what is an extremely busy day. Well, Aaron, it's a great great to be with you and with you, Mary, too. Uh, this is one of my first opportunities for podcasts, so I'm really, uh, I love the adventure. Well, I hope it's not the last. So. Yeah. Uh, first, before we get into all of the religious liberty stuff, I think uh, I, I think it'd be helpful just to hear more about where you're coming from. Do you mind talking a little bit about how you felt called to serve as a priest and and then eventually um, to serve as a bishop. Sure, sure. Thanks, Aaron. Um, well, first of all, I, I, I grew up, I, I'm part of a family. And so I grew up in a, in a wonderful family in uh, the northeast part of Pennsylvania. People who know that area uh, would know what I'm talking about when I say the anthracite coal region. So came from a very small town. Um, uh, I can't imagine a better place to grow up. Uh, and... Uh, Quite honestly, I was the baby in the family. I had three older sisters, and then I had an older brother, my brother Georgie, who had Down syndrome, uh, was uh, uh, was very close and very instrumental, actually, in my vocation, I believe. And uh, uh, growing up, my mom was especially good going to church, and what my, my dad was pretty good, as 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 we we all we all are not not perfect on things. Uh, but we had no nobody in my family who was ever a priest or a sister or whatever. Uh, it was probably my um, sophomore year in high school that I started to feel that call. I think maybe, you know, when you start to take these SAT tests about getting ready for college, mm-hmm. I think that's what got me thinking about career and calling. Other people told me, oh, we think you were thinking about being a priest when you were in eighth grade. So... They knew it before I did, let's put it that way. Um, But it was, uh, that was the call. And and I think two things I think back to. One was I went to a Catholic high school, and it was a small one. And uh, we had the the privilege of going to chapel during the study hall if we wanted to. And and I did start to go to chapel. And there was something about that feeling drawn to something bigger than myself. I guess many people describe their vocation that way. And really, I, I felt a call of Christ. There was no whisper in my ear or anything like that, but but I felt that call. And of course, I always had uh, uh, a, a very strong uh, admiration for the priests who, who served in my parish and then again where I went to grade school. The other one I already mentioned, my brother Georgie, five years older than I, my older brother, uh, was born with Down syndrome. And I think Probably in all of my family, Georgie brought out the best in us. So I was included in that. And, and I think that notion of serving others probably came both with the, needing, the need to, to give attention to my brother George. He was quite talented and quite capable of doing things on his own. But there was that notion of us all needing to help. He didn't go quite through the, the process of schooling that we all go through. So... Um, those would be the two things in which I guess looking back our Lord really spoke mm-hmm. through natural circumstances. Mm-hmm. I love being a priest by the way mm-hmm. and and so uh, 
I, uh, in many ways, I can't imagine being anything but a priest, and it's, it's been great. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's kind of something I wonder, uh, though, like, you know, I think many of us, you, we can sometimes think, well, what if I had done, chosen, a, a, sure. gone a different way, like um, made a different choice at some point in life and pursued something different? Have you ever wondered that? Like, if you if you hadn't been a priest, what do you think you would, what do you think you'd be doing well, now? Well, Aaron, uh, I don't think I've ever specifically wondered it. However, I've been asked about it. Okay. <laughs> so thank you for asking me again. I will, I will say that. Uh, I, I, I loved being on the debating club in okay. high school. And so part of me thinks, I'll bet I would have ended up as an attorney if they threw me out of the seminary. <laughs> you know, kind of a thing. I don't know if that's the case or not. Um, I ended up, uh, after being ordained, I was asked by the bishop uh, to go to another diocese and in that process to get a degree in social work. Oh. And so worked in Catholic Charities. And I thought, well, maybe I would be a, a social worker. So your guess is as good as mine. Um, however, uh, I guess if I were putting money on it, I suspect I would have ended up as an attorney. Well, then it, it sounds like you are leading the right committee because we are full of we are full of attorneys. So, and and I do think I suspect that when you felt God calling you to to serve as a priest, you probably never imagined that you were going to be dealing with. Uh, government-mandated contraception. Is that a safe assumption? You know, maybe not in this sense. Uh, I think of two things. By the way, full disclosure, you gave me these questions ahead of time, so thank you for doing that. Uh, (laughs) Thank you for that. Uh, But when I read the question, I thought, well, uh, I was ordained a priest in March of, of, of 1972. The first letter to the editor that I ever wrote was in January of 1973, Roe v. Wade. And it was, um, I can still remember writing the letter. I remember it getting published. And uh, so even though I can't say that I was necessarily, um, I worked in Catholic Charities as a seminarian, I, I, I think I always had an interest in the common good. There was always part of me that even when I was in a parish that looked a little beyond I remember somebody saying in canon law, a pastor is responsible not just for the Catholics who come to his church, but to everybody who lives in that territory. And that always fascinated me. I thought that's a wonderful way to describe the church as having an interest in everyone. And and so the common good meant a lot to me. And uh, I guess maybe because my brother Georgie, uh, often people with Down syndrome or people with a disability are treated shabbily mm-hmm. in the law. And so that probably influenced me a good, a good deal. And then, of course, uh, when I went to uh, School of Social Work, uh, I did what was called the macro course. You know, micro would be kind of one-on-one counseling. Macro is looking at public policy. So in some ways, um, it shouldn't surprise me. It, from 1977, for 20-some years, I was involved with the Pennsylvania Catholic Conference. So so I, I've been involved in public policy work virtually my whole life as a priest. Mm-hmm. So can I ask Archbishop Kurtz sure. about your... Um, you mentioned your, your mother as kind of being maybe like the... It sounds like you're saying she's the spiritual leader of the family or she was going to church, right? So, I mean, to some extent, it, it sounds like your family life was 
one of your childhood was one of joy and support mm. and and love, you know, particularly you know, it, for your brother. And, and uh, uh, dad, don't don't think ill of me because I, my dad had a great great influence on my life. He he was not as much of a churchgoer, although once I entered the seminary, he was like the biggest promoter of priests. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I think what what helped us is because of my brother George having a disability, uh, my dad took special attention to the both of us. Our, our, our three sisters were pretty much raised and out of the family. So growing up, it was basically Georgie and me. And, and so dad would take us fishing and we would, we would uh, go to the Poconos and whatnot. And so there was actually a, a pretty good bit of contact in a very beautiful way with our father as well as with our mother. And um, maybe today I look and I think, gee, I wish that would happen more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, who's to say how God influenced people? But, but uh, the image of father is one that is, is very beautifully implanted in my heart as his mother. I think you're absolutely right about my mom. She was, she was a good person. Uh, so I did come from a family and a community that appreciated families mm-hmm. and from a neighborhood. The coal country, we were poor. I mean, the, the coal had been at its height in the 40s, so most of the people in Monty City were unemployed. My dad died of, of uh, black lung disease, which is emphysema. Mm-hmm. And so um, I guess from the outside, it looked like a very poor setting. I think we were part of Appalachia, and I didn't know that until I went to Tennessee. I didn't know it. Um, Mm-hmm. But in the midst of it, I think both my, my both of my parents uh, had a great effect. I think on my growing up and on my uh, my vocation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's great. Now, to to kind of pivot a little bit to to kind of our work here at the mm-hmm. conference, um, you know, you, you've been involved in the USCCB in a number of different ways for some time now, and and it's often. You've been involved at times when, at tumultuous times, when we've had controversial topics, uh, have been uh, kind of in the news, issues like marriage redefinition, conscience protection, religious liberty. And yet, I think, I mean, even somebody who's just listening to this conversation now would not suspect that you are somebody who relishes controversy, who wants to get into political fights and that sort of thing. Um, so, I mean, I kind of wonder, how is it that you get drawn into in, into this kind of work Jimmy, all the how time? Do I say yes. <laughs> yes. <when? laughs> yeah. uh, uh, this might be the $64,000 question. Maybe you'll be able to help me answer that one. Uh, but but I, I think it has to do with uh, the vision of common good and of our society. Mm-hmm. And um, in, in many ways... I've always seen my role as a priest and then later as a bishop as as bringing people together united in truth and charity in Christ. And when when there is an assault on what is the best within our culture, I think there's just a certain sense of, of uh, how would I say, courage that, that is called forth in people. Um, and, and, I, and I believe in many ways that, that, that this is the case here. You know, the church at our best, um, we don't impose, we propose. In fact, Jesus in the Gospels never imposed himself on others. He, he, he always uh, invited or proposed. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think what, what pulls me in on it is the fear that people 
especially people of religious conviction, will be given a false choice in our society, that they'll be said, well, you can only go down two roads. You either stay with your convictions and kind of go private, or you, you, uh, you continue to work, but you'll have to give up your integrity. You'll have to, to do things, serve people the way uh, we as a government say you must serve. Mm-hmm. Well, that just brings out, I guess, fighting spirit's the wrong word, but the desire to stand up with some conviction. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in, um, in Louisville, I've often said, I used to say that you needed three C's. You need it, um, and by the way, I now say you need four C's, but you need it courage, compassion, and civility. Mm-hmm. And I always felt that, 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 that sometimes we, we say, well, this person is good at compassion, but, but lacks courage, or the opposite, you know, is good at courage, but kind of is always in your face. Well, I think the church in witnessing at its best uh, needs to be, uh, bring forth people of courage, and compassion at the same time, and always within the context of civility. Mm-hmm. Do you want to know what the fourth C is? Can I guess? Yes. Is it collaboration? No. Oh, although, oh, that's okay. the fifth C. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's the fifth one. C. Okay. That's okay. a good one. Do you know? Do you know what what it is? It's calm. Calm. Serenity. It's it's remaining calm because within our culture, our, our culture is so frenetic, mm-hmm. and I think that's why people maybe say, well, someone interested in religious liberty is frenetic and running in many directions. I don't, I don't think that adds to things. If anything, it, 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 it subtracts. And I don't think people are attracted to that witness. But I think if they see someone who's a person of courage and compassion, civility, but also has a certain sense of calm, mm-hmm. and which requires humility, because we can't all, no one can do everything, mm-hmm. but we need to... And I, uh, Okay, now I have five C's. <laughs> Collaborate. I love it. Collaboration, because uh, one of the things that's happened here at the conference is the way that all these challenges uh, to religious liberty have brought us together, you know, working together, all the different departments, really. Someone said at a meeting uh, the other day, someone in Family Life said that collaboration uh, promotes unity, something yeah. like that. So oh, in speaking of the common there, good, no I mean... There's no question about that. And, and you're absolutely right that... that uh, we should give thanks for collaboration, and collaboration in a way that people bring the richness of their passion. I like to say in, in Louisville that that when when we come together as one, we don't want you to leave what you're passionate about at the door. We want you to bring that with you. That that we the church needs people of passion, but in a way that there's a certain humility that says, well, in my passion, I want to to deepen my grounding in Catholic social teaching. I want to see kind of the things that have attracted me and brought me here great. That's the ticket in the door. But let me deepen that that uh, beautiful commitment to the common good that is expressed in the fullness of our Catholic so, uh, social teaching, not necessarily in one particular aspect. Mm-hmm. That's where I think collaboration helps us. Or finding collaboration with people of other faiths as well. Oh, that's absolutely. another area where mm-hmm. really this this is an issue we can absolutely. have so much common ground on. P- with people, other people of good of faith. In fact, anytime we get into the public square, and this is the greatness of America, we don't want to lose this. Anytime we get into the public square, we're, we're constantly both uh, listening but listening in a way in which we're not afraid to articulate our stance, what, what our conviction is, but in a way that opens us to hear 
and that old expression about walking in the shoes of someone. I think there's there's something beautiful about that. And then finding ways where without doing violence to our convictions, uh, we can can look to, to cooperate with others. By the way, that's one of the big adventures of being an archbishop. You got like tons of opportunities to collaborate with people who I would never have met in my whole life had I not had this opportunity to serve in the church. I mean, you mentioning that about calm, I think one of the things that impresses me so much about some of our staff here who works regularly on Capitol Hill is how calm they often are. <laughs> because you're thinking, you hear about how you know dysfunctional our politics are today, and yet the, the people my experience at least of people who work in this building in a regular basis on in that sort of work they really are motivated by a sense of 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 faith and hope in that that Christ is the lord of history and so i don't have to like be trying to force everything try to make something happen try to make bad deals or things like that that they really that there is a sense of serenity, and yeah. and so they don't lose themselves in the work that they're doing. So it's I kind of, it's, I kind of think you're, you're you're right on that, uh, Aaron. And I think um, I, I would say it's a confidence in in a vision that is bigger than ourselves, the vision of Christ. Mm-hmm. And I think I think you're you're absolutely right in talking about that. You know, the other thing that we bring, and and I know when I did, and this gets back to my social work studies about public policy, is. Uh, this English method of organizing, uh, of looking at, at, at maybe government and politics as competing self-interest, mm-hmm. that kind of I have to compete strongly to make sure I get my share, is so different from the Roman approach of the common good, of seeing not so much individual rights as primary, but rather the common good as primary. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that both have to be present. We have to respect the rights of individuals. We cannot impose on people, no question. But, but to have a perspective that I'm looking not just when I vote at what's, what's in it for me, mm-hmm. but I'm actually looking to see what do I genuinely believe? What, what have I discerned as God's direction that actually is going to make this a better nation or a better uh, town or a better community, the mm-hmm. common good in that sense. Mm-hmm. I think we bring a perspective in our Catholic philosophy and theology that that is beneficial to everyone. And when they hear about it, I think they're attracted to it. Mm-hmm. Now, um, you know, as as you know, uh, religious liberty became kind of a the, this major issue of concern for the bishops uh, after the HHS contraceptive mandate. I mean. In some ways, it's been an issue that's been out there for a long time, but that was really the impetus for for the ad hoc committee and eventually, um, which then has become the Committee for Religious Liberty. Um, the, the marriage redefinition, though, is also another context in which we have to do some work. Uh, for example, faith-based adoption agencies have been forced to shut down because they only place children with a married mother and father. So those are some cases that are well-known. People who follow the religious liberty issue kind of know about those sorts of things. But are there some other areas where you think we might do a little bit more, uh, try to make like bring some other things to light that are going on? Let me, let me mention kind of, uh, I, I would say from, what do they say, 30,000 feet in the air yeah. looking down. Uh, 
there is what I would call uh, having our day in court, meaning being able to articulate how important religious liberty is and not violating religious liberty, a, a liberty to serve and to witness. But there's also the court of common opinion. Mm-hmm. And I think in the court of common opinion, uh, we have a lot of work to do. And that is messaging in this sense. How can we tell the truth in a way that touches the hearts of people today? Mm-hmm. That's true, but also um, is said in a language that people can understand and appreciate. And I think one of the biggest works, I believe, that's going to happen over the next three years with, with our committee uh, is, is that whole area of what I would call the narrative, the message. Now, I don't mean a false narrative. I'm not talking about making things up. But I'm saying, how, how can we tell the truth in a way that touches the heart of people? That's a big challenge right now because a lot of times... People who, when they hear the word religious liberty, they think, well, you're just interested in taking your liberty as a privilege uh, as opposed to someone else's liberty. Mm -hmm. And, of course, um, if you go back to the Second Vatican Council, you go back to uh, Dignitatis Humanae, that that document on uh, religious liberty that's so foundational for us. It says, you know, the rights of religious liberty within due limits. We all know that there are limits to to liberty, and it's all based on the, the whole notion of what's in it for the common good. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but there is a way, in a very rational way within the United States, that we come to those conclusions. And um, we believe that sometimes things will have to go to the Supreme Court. And I hope if there is a disagreement about religious liberty and we, we have that day in court, that it will also be a day in which we can address the court of, com- of, of public opinion, mm-hmm. of how do people understand uh, how important the richness of uh, religious liberty. I like to say how religious liberty is good for America. Mm-hmm. It's not just good for the individual uh, Catholic or Protestant or Jewish person or Muslim, it's not just good for the person who has a a faith conviction, but it actually is good for our whole common good of the United States. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know, Mary um, mentioning the collaboration with uh, with, um, people of other faith, and you kind of have touched on it just now, and and Dignitatis Humanae was originally going to be part of a document on ecumenism, They, they got broken up into two different documents. But so religious liberty and, and ecumenism. Aaron, I'm learning something about Vatican II. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Yes, like Aaron's well, the PhD. Yeah, I like right. this. Well, just the, the, the only point is just that um, I, I think that the collaboration, the the ecumenism piece, uh, this is it's important in religious liberty, partly because we want to make sure that that the the story isn't just that. Well, we want religious freedom just for ourselves, as you and you're touching on this, saying that it's it's for uh, it's this is something we think is good for our country, and it's for people of other faiths, uh, other faiths too. And I think that's why the collaboration piece, it seems to me, is so important. Yeah, and you know, you know, the other the other part I would say is there's kind of a dangerous approach to toleration today, as if toleration somehow means, well. We're not interested in in the richness of our convictions, that somehow when we talk to another person, we live 
our convictions at the door. I think the, 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 the average family knows the dangers of having peace at all costs. So just we'll just ignore the problem. We just won't talk about issues where there's reasonable disagreement. Mm-hmm. Much better for us to it, it's harder a little bit, but to cultivate an understanding that that you know in our United States we may disagree on certain things, mm-hmm. but the greatness of our nation is that we can disagree without being disagreeable, and we can have our day of discourse. We can actually have a dialogue with one another. And I think that's something that's very important. And if if through our efforts with religious liberty, we can help foster that, well, then our whole culture, our civility, uh, that will all benefit from this. So, so I, I think it's, it's not just a very narrow issue. It's, a, it's an issue that talks about the way in which we treat each other with dignity. Well, Human dignity, which yes, is, of course, the translation of that document on religious liberty, is, is it's, it's aptly named. Now, um, I don't want to belabor the point, but maybe to go a little bit deeper about sure. the, 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 the how we articulate our promotion of religious liberty. Um, some, especially in the in the in the marriage um, context. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it seems and, and I'm not suggesting that this is a fair way that it's portrayed but this is sometimes the way it can appear it, it sometimes it, it it is seen as if uh it's one side fighting for equality and another side fighting for freedom and that freedom and equality are getting pit against one another you sometimes hear it framed that way uh and then and if that's the case then if it's if equality is sort of what is seen as the more important value um then then it makes the job of somebody who seems like they're promoting freedom that much more, that much more difficult. It's more of an, an uphill battle. Um, again, I'm not saying that this is a fair sure. way of framing it, but no, sometimes think, this I, is the way but, but it's framed. I think that's a, that's, that's, that may be a, a fair way of describing how many people see things mm-hmm. uh, and read about them in the paper. Um, I'd like to look at it more from the viewpoint of the vision we bring. Now, if you look at at the question of marriage, what is the vision that we bring in terms of the gift of sexuality? Mm -hmm. And quite honestly, quite apart from my religious convictions, what's happening within our culture? What's happening within our nation? the, the, the Christian vision of sexuality, which is not meant just for Christians, it's just that that's the way in which we, in our faith, uh, uh, convey it, is talking about sexuality as something that is meant for love and life, to bring us out of ourselves mm-hmm. and not turn us into ourselves. Um, we have, um, and I'll put my social work hat on for a moment if I can, um, we have some real problems within our culture of, of people, young people, children growing up without that capacity to have a nurturing family. Now, whose problem is that? Well, it's every one of our problems because, you know, who is my mother, who is my sister? Well, every, every person is. We know that in our faith, and we know that in the fabric of our, of our nation. Just as, as we, we call out and say, well, I got a name, racism, as something that divides us. Uh, we can also say that there's a direction of, of treating sexuality uh, really as something that is turning people in on themselves mm-hmm. that's, that's 
a danger. It's a danger not only to that person who's going to end up being very unhappy, to be honest with you, mm-hmm. but it's a danger to that family that is 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 being, uh, I guess, uh, creating a, a situation in which there's distance mm-hmm. instead of of a, of a commitment, a loving commitment to others. So, I think. The, the Christian vision of sexuality, w- whether we talk about it today as uh, St. John Paul II's vision of what, what has been called the theology of the body, or, or whatever that vision is, no one is imposing that vision on someone. But my gosh, let's all take a step back and say, what's happening within the culture of our nation? And, and, and shouldn't we pause to take a step back and, and, and look at the people who are bringing a certain conviction, a conviction that is sent meant to witness and serve, do we really want to close off their voices? Mm -hmm. Do we really want to deny our young people the opportunity to hear of this vision? Mm -hmm. And I would say no. And and I think that that's why there's a lot at stake. It's not just the question of this individual's freedom versus someone else's equality. It's a question of us seeking together a culture that promotes a vision that will bring out the best in us. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, that's part of the reason I, I feel a, a conviction and a, and a certain passion for, for speaking about these, this nation of this area of a vision. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, after we finish this conversation, yeah. just here in about an hour or so, uh, we're going to go. An hour? <laughs> no, no, not the conversation. <laughs> about an hour. About an hour after the okay. conversation. <laughs> I, I can't. I don't have much more energy for this. Yeah, yeah. But no, in, about an hour after our conversation, we're going to go downstairs and we're going to have our first committee meeting with yeah. the new, the the newly established uh, committee for religious liberty. So, so exciting! This is, is history. History, history in the making. Yeah, it's an exciting day. It's a standing committee as opposed to. Previously, being an ad hoc committee, exactly. right? We were yeah. an ad hoc committee, um, and, and so, but 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 there are a lot of new a lot of new people involved. So I mean, it really is um, it's it's a big day. I think. I mean, I you know, it's it's exciting. We've got um, thing, we've got new people, new bishops, new consultants. Um, so today, even with this conversation. And the one we're going to have here in a couple of hours, uh, we're really setting a tone, I think, for what the next three years are going to look like. Um, you've already kind of um, talked a little bit about some of uh, giving us a sense of your vision of religious liberty. But perhaps you could say a little bit more about uh, what your hopes are uh, for your time as, as chair of the committee. Sure, I, I will. Uh, well, first of all, let me just uh, give a, a broader sense of the purpose of the Bishop's Conference because the Bishop's Conference is really meant to serve. Uh, serving the local churches, which would be the dioceses throughout the country, I guess 196 at last count, maybe it's 197 now. Um, it's, it's also meant to serve the common good, and that's why we have uh, such advocacy on a legislative uh, level uh, uh, and, and uh, th- throughout the government. This is all meant not for its own purpose, but rather to be of service. And likewise, I think to be very honest with you, each committee serves the bishops who in turn are called to serve the faithful. Mm-hmm. So um, that's the first thing I would say is our, our committee is not, does not have a life in its, in its own. It needs to listen and, and collaborate and also 
promote things that uh, that are in keeping with the vision of the conference itself. Mm-hmm. That's the first thing. Secondly, I mentioned earlier that I think there are going to be two directions. I don't want to. I always like to go in with an initial stance. And by the way, I'm not always right on this because because the the meeting itself will sometimes raise directions that I hadn't even thought about, mm-hmm. and that's good. That's 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 the committee at work at its best. But I think there's two major directions, and one would be. Uh, How do we develop um, a narrative that that both is true and charitable and touches the hearts of people? We talked about this a little earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, How do we we talk? Right now, I think we speak about religious liberty or religious freedom as, as really being a not a special privilege, but rather a freedom both to witness and to serve for the good of others. So there's something very unselfish, and that I think will attract people. The second thing is I think we're going to be playing second fiddle. I think I understood that second fiddle is a good thing, but it's a supportive role. And so we're going to be second fiddle, as I see it, because people are not going to be interested so much in religious liberty, but rather in what is the cause that's helping the common good. So uh, when, when we're dealing with... Uh, of the rights of a, of a child in the womb, or the rights of a mother, uh, the rights of a child with Down syndrome and that child's family, the rights of an immigrant family. All of these things are very specific people. And we're saying, how do the convictions of religious liberty help to serve them and help to make us a stronger and a more attractive society? So how are we promoting the common good? Uh, that's what makes it exciting. It's an adventure that we can't really script everything because we're really trying to respond to the way in which the culture is to support the things that really are healthy and good and to challenge and try to help reshape the things that we think are moving us in the wrong direction. So it is exciting as far as the topics. But I would say they're the two major things. Uh, how are we good at messaging? And the people in the pew and the reading the papers, they'll tell us whether we're good at that. We need to hear that. So and, beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Do you think you'll have a, uh, a patron saint that you might adopt? Yeah, I wanna, already come going. on, let me know. You already gave me the, the fifth C. So who do, you, who do you have as a patron saint? St. Thomas More, right? St. Thomas More would be a wonderful, would be a... a he would be a wonderful saint um, because of the, his convictions and also the fact that uh, he was not acting on his own basis. He was acting because of what he thought was good for England. Mm-hmm. He was committed to the church. He was committed to his king. But he, uh, he was a man with a moral compass. Um, I like what you're saying, Mary, because people, I think, are inspired by real people people with integrity. Uh, Strangely enough, she didn't do an awful lot uh, in public policy, but Mother Teresa cut through things. Mother Teresa was someone who served very well. She wasn't afraid to say, listen, by the way, uh, stop doing abortions. Mm -hmm. But her credentials she brought with her. Nobody said, well, you should try to do some service yourself, said Mother mm-hmm. Teresa. I mean, everybody knew. So I almost think we need someone who, whose credibility is seen first, and this is a person who is serving others. Um, I think it's the reason, quite honestly, why the Little Sisters of the Poor mm-hmm. were such good poster children 
for uh, the HHS mandate because it was obvious that they weren't in it for the money. Mm -hmm. You know, they're in it to serve the poorest of people, but they want to do it with integrity. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, uh, I'm going to think more about that, but uh, maybe people will call in to you, Aaron, and let you know a good patron saint. A, a couple of years ago for our uh, for the fortnight for freedom, the the theme of it was witnesses to freedom. So for each day, we, we ended up, we had about 14 different saints or sets of saints that we um, drew attention to. And and one of the great things about doing it, you say people are are attracted to, to people. And another bit of it that was helpful to talk about this group of, you know, several saints is that, you know, different saints speak to different people in different ways just because of personality, because of the kinds of things that they cared about. People are attracted to different people. I think that that's, that's, um, it's good for us to do that, to hold up different ways of, of kind of, of, um, of answering a, a call. I, I think you're absolutely right. I, I think, um, I think also, for example, that, um, not only saints, but also witnesses, real live witnesses today. We're, we're dealing today, as, as you probably know, with promoting uh, the Conscience Protection Act. Mm -hmm. And when I've talked to other people, they say, tell us a little bit about that nurse in New York who, who tearfully mm -hmm. said, I've been given a choice I can't accept. I will not leave my profession as a nurse, but I will not participate in taking the life of a child in the womb. Mm -hmm. Now, I think most people would say, well, tell me a little more about this person because it doesn't look like she's someone in there for a fight. She's, she's wanting to serve. She's mm -hmm. a nurse. And, and yet uh, her integrity comes through. Mm -hmm. So both, both uh, I would say, uh, the saints, but also people who are uh, saints in, in, the, in the process, becoming saints, if you would, in, right in, in our, before our very eyes, mm -hmm. I think is beautiful. Well, uh, you know, to finish this out, I want to ask you about something um, that maybe can be kind of practical for, for us to think about. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I mentioned you don't seem like someone who uh, relishes controversy. We kind of talked about that. W one of the reasons that I said that, that it, my the, the way I've seen you in public life mm -hmm. is you seem so genuinely joyful. And I think that's even come through just now in this Thanks. in this conversation. And Thanks, Mom and Dave. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, I don't know. We kind of talked about this a little bit earlier uh, earlier today when we met this morning. But, um, you know, you're actually the first bishop I ever met. Right. Uh, because uh, when I was a graduate student several years ago, I was an intern at the Catholic Campaign for Human Development. And... Uh, we were both at a reception for a CCHD in Don't Baltimore. Don't say we were at the bar. We were, we were, sta <laughs> we were standing next. To, we stood, Staying hydrated. <laughs> yes, yes. Yes, yes. We stood in line at the bar. and um, But I was struck even then by your joy that you seem, you, you mentioned, um, it, it was no surprise to me when you said just a, a little bit ago that you love being a priest yes. because that was my first impression of you, uh, just that first conversation. So, um I think this is something you you have expressed very well. I know um, your friend Cardinal Dolan also talks about this a lot. Perfectly right. Um, and so I, I think uh, we see this in you. And, and uh, I wonder if you might tell us what are some ways that, that practices that we can kind of undertake, especially it's Lent, we're thinking about how sure. we can grow in faith. 
you know, what are some things that we can do in these remaining well, let me, weeks? Let me, mention, let me mention a few things, Aaron. Thanks for asking about it. I think the first one is, is really to be grounded in prayer. Uh, I mentioned that we, we joked a little bit about the five C's, et cetera. But, but uh, I think in the morning during my holy hour or holy half hour, you know, it depends on, on the, 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 the press of the day. But in that time, I think there's a certain uh, opportunities for me to focus. And I think it's within the reach of everyone. Uh, and it seems to me that that it's it's very easy at the morning for kind of my calendar for the day to kind of run through my mind. And it's more simply saying, Lord, um, show me how you want to use me. And it might be uh, give me the courage or give me the compassion. It depends on what I'm being asked to do. Um, uh, give me the calm in all cases with that. So I think I think I would begin with prayer. And uh, I find uh, I'm, I'm reading uh uh, uh, Reverend uh, Laird's book on uh, on Into the Silent Land. It's, I'm actually rereading it. The Augustinian priest. I'm blanking on his first name. Um, Stephen, maybe it is. But at any rate, I, I think people need to be fed. And so to be able to get a good book, sometimes there's these little booklets that have just a little bit of each day. That, I think that would be a good thing. I think the second thing that's very important is... Not to be afraid to listen and share. Uh, to, to kind of approach a person who, who approaches you or who's in presence you're in uh, as, why, this is an opportunity for me to genuinely be engaged with someone. And to kind of see each one of those events or encounters as, as precious. And, you know, we, we were told we're given two ears and one mouth, so we listen twice as much as we speak. My husband and, always tells me that. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? And it's, and it's true. Uh, so, so for us, maybe to enjoy that. I just read a book that I've been promoting. It's called Just Listen by Dr. Mark Goulston. Maybe you've heard of it. But mm. it's, it's, a, it's a book that, that, that he, his basic premise is... Um, don't try to make yourself interesting before someone else, but rather, and don't even just be interested in someone, but make the person you're talking to interesting. And that means ask the right questions, mm -hmm. etc. And then I think the third one that I would say is look at life as an adventure and enjoy the adventure of serving Christ. So that's true for someone who's a who's a wife and a mother or a husband and a, and a father or someone who's single and, and working, a priest, a, a deacon. You know, it's true, a teacher. Every one of us has the adventure of serving Christ and kind of appreciate the fact that there's there each day is precious in being able to do that. Mm -hmm. Great to do it during the season of Lent. Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, I think that that is a good place to, um, to close now. Uh, thank you so much for for taking the time to join us. Um, like I said, I know that you've got so much going on while you, when you're here in Washington, but really appreciate this. this I think this was great. So, uh, this is Aaron Matthew Weldon. And Mary McCluskey. Thank you so much for joining us for the first Freedom Podcast. <laughs>